Okay, so uh, many of you may or may not know this, uh, but in our home, uh, we, I've shared with you a number of times, we, uh, we enjoy movies. And every week, at least once a week, it seems like we find ourselves searching for a movie to watch, uh, all four of us. And it's never easy choosing a movie because usually what my kids want to watch is not uh, what Tracy and I are inclined to watch. And, and it seems like they're both of the age. I have a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old, and, and one of them is always suggesting something. Hey, how about that movie? And we've just drawn the line. If it's generally speaking, if it's a rated R movie, we're not going to show it to them. Sorry, you, you know, we're not going to watch that one. Maybe one day you will. That's your decision to make, but we're not going to. We're not going to do that. So anyway, usually on, on Saturday night, uh, maybe it's a movie night or generally speaking, we have a, a fairly busy Saturday and we'll be running around doing errands or maybe working something, uh, a, a project around the house. So at the end of the day, we're ready to, to crash and just, uh, and just watch a movie. And so what movies do, you, do we watch, you might ask? Well, it's usually something... Uh, along the lines, you know, to try and entertain everyone. Maybe it's an action movie, or for a while it was the Marvel movies, and, and uh, we, we've watched all the Harry Potter movies. You get the idea. It could be anything. Once in a while, though, uh, I'll convince them to watch a movie from when I was a kid. Uh, at least a, a movie before their time, like, like the Star Wars series, or uh, a Sandlot. Remember that one? That's a great one. Uh, Back to the Future, um, or, or whatever. Uh, there, was, there was one movie, though, from my era that my kids asked if, if they could watch, and I was very, very reluctant to show it to them. That movie was, well, let me tell you how we, how we got there. This was a few years ago, mind you. This wasn't just it was a few years ago, so my kids were a little bit younger than they are now. They're, they're, again, 15 and 16 now. This was probably when they were around the age of 12 or so, somewhere around there. It all started when my older son asked, what was the scariest movie you've ever seen uh, from when you were a kid? Okay? And so I told him because I remembered it well. What movie was it, you ask? It was the Steven Spielberg classic, Jaws. Are you familiar with that movie? Yes. Just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water? <laughs> <Da-dum>. <laughs> that movie scared the pants off of me. I remember it was terrified. It terrified me. So naturally, when I tell my kids about this movie, what do they say? Ooh, I want to see it. Can we see it? Can we see it? And of course, my response was, no way. No way. It will give you nightmares. They, they persisted and asked me over and over again. They kept at it, and they told me that they were old enough and they could handle it. So finally, perhaps against our better judgment, we said, okay, okay, all right. Listen, listen. If when we start to watch it, if it starts to become too bothersome, we'll shut it off. So we started to watch it. And let me tell you, they thought the movie was hilarious. <laughs> For, the, for those of you that haven't watched this movie in a while, please go back and watch it. Movies have come a long way. They kept laughing at this movie because they told us it looks so fake. They said, it looks so fake. Look at it. And Tracy and I watched it. And we even kind of kept looking at each other. And we're like, yeah, the acting is kind of bad too in this movie. And, and with special effects today, if they want to put a dinosaur on your screen, they will put a dinosaur on your screen and it looks like a real dinosaur. Do you know what Jaws looks like on your TV now? It looks like a giant rubber floaty that babies play on. That's what it looks like when you see it on your TV, okay? The movie wasn't nearly as terrifying as we feared it would be for them. And dare I say, the same thing is true about the book of Revelation. Dare I say it. To the average Christian, the book of Revelation is is terrifying. 
is terrifying. People sit down for their quiet time and of all the things, what am I going to read today? Seldom will they say, maybe a light reading from Revelation, right? <laughs> Almost never. They won't do it. It's too hard. But is it really that hard? Is it really that hard? What, what do you think about when we think about the book of Revelation? Tell me some things that, that's in your mind when we talk about, oh, we're, we're going to talk about Revelation. What are some of the things that pop into your head? The end times, okay. Something else? A lot of imagery. That's a good word, imagery. Something else? Confusing. Something else? Something else? Come on, you guys. I know, I know you've thought about this before. Okay, well, most of us, all right, have opinions colored by what we've seen maybe growing up, maybe what we've seen in, in movies and uh, in, in books that we've read. Do you remember the, the Left Behind series? Are you, how many of you are familiar, have heard of either the movie, the novels, Left Behind? Many, most of you, okay. Um, they were very popular some years ago because these movies, or at least in no smart, small part, uh, many, many Christians have a, a similar belief to what you'll hear and read about in Left Behind movies and novels. Um, even some of you that have never read or seen Left Behind probably have a belief that it's been influenced by what's been depicted in those novels. And, and what's strange is that uh, the, the ideas that have been so perpetuated in those novels are, are really not that old. Okay, I, I don't think that uh, in, the, in the way that we struggle with what are the end times going to be like, I don't think they were worrying about it to this degree, uh, say, in the 1700s, the 1600s, 1500s, all right? So most of the, the, the lifespan of the, the Christian church. Okay, so this is basically how it goes. This is basically how the, the Left Behind series would set it up. And again, this is probably the majority report within in Christianity. That they, they followed suit and said, okay, this is, what, this is sort of my understanding of what the end times are going to be like. First, there would be a rapture, Okay. People would disappear before our eyes is, is sort of the, uh, the, the notion. This would be a secret rapture of sorts. And, and you, you would perhaps cars would be crashing off the, the, uh, the, the interstate or airplanes falling out of the sky because pilots were suddenly raptured from the, from the cockpit. We'd be at work or at the Y or at a football game and suddenly people would disappear because they were raptured. And those who are hanging around would have been left behind, as the series states. They were left behind because their spiritual lives weren't in order, okay? This event would cue uh, those that had been left behind uh, that the end times were beginning, all right? And now the tribulation would begin, okay? The tribulation. Uh, this, this would be a, a period whereby those who had been left behind would now have one more chance to get it right and, and turn to Christ. And if they had done so, then... They would either have been taken either halfway through what has been identified as a seven-year tribulation or would be taken away at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Now, the tribulation is an event that is both mentioned in Matthew and Revelation, associated with the end times. It, it depicts times of war, calamity, great suffering, especially for those that would identify themselves as, as Christians. And there really isn't a consensus within, consensus within this school of thought that, that's perpetuated in, in uh, the Left Behind series and, and uh, whether or not this will recur before the rapture or if it recurs uh, midway through the tribulation or if it happens after. There's not a consensus in this school of thought, okay? But at the conclusion of that seven-year period then begins the 1,000-year millennium of Christ, right? The 1,000-year millennium of Christ. 
uh, Christ would reign supremely for 1,000 years, and at the end of that 1,000 years, the Father would pack up shop, and at the end of it all, those who are in Christ would then enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the basic outline of what you would read perhaps in those Left Behind series. And, and, uh, and, and this is really the, the, the school of thought that uh, is, is, comes out of what's called dispensationalism, and I'll get to that in a second. So the millennium is the 1,000 year of Christ uh, that occurs after the tribulation, before the end of time. And again, this is probably... Uh, the majority report, what most, maybe I should qualify it even more, most American Christians uh, might think of how the end times will go, okay? Uh, And I could spend a whole class talking about what dispensational theology, but again, this is the sort of the outgrowth of dispensational theology, but the basic idea behind dispensational theology suggests that God deals with man differently throughout history, and, and that, that changes. He changes the way he deals with man during different periods of time. Now, again, without going into to great depth on that, for me, right off the bat, I'm uncomfortable with that idea uh, or language that suggests that God somehow changes. I think the Bible paints for us a picture of God, a God that does not change. And so, you know, going in this church, this church is not a dispensational church. This is church is a, is a covenantal church, uh, which teaches the idea that God uh, basically has, has dealt with man the same throughout history. That man's only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ. That's been, that's been the case from the garden, okay? Uh, since Adam and Eve, whichever side of the cross you lived on, you either looked forward to the day that Christ would provide an atonement or you looked back on the date that Christ provided an atonement for your sin. Either way, your only saving grace was, was someone from up there would come down here and help us out. Whichever side of the cross you lived on. Either way, that was your only saving grace. That was the ba- that's the basic tenet of covenant theology, that, that God, that God made a promise a long, long time ago that he would be the one who would deal with sin, that he would take care of it on our behalf. And he would deal with man and their sin the same way all throughout history, and that is with the blood of Christ, okay? All this to say, a rapture followed by a tribulation, followed by a millennium, to many, is, to, uh, followed by a millennium, to many is, is just another way of God dealing with man and their sin in, in a new way. And a, yet another dispensation. So we as a, as a, as a covenant uh, believing church, we don't quite see it that way. And as a result, our theology is a little less complex. Okay, if I could use it that way. That means our view of revelation is quite a bit less complex. Now, I tell you that not so that you'll subscribe to covenant theology just because it's easier uh, to understand this, but but when when the end comes around, when the end comes around, we aren't looking for yet another way. We're not looking for a, a new wrinkle, a new set of requirements, a, a, a change in the game plan. We believe that God is doing what he's always been doing since the dawn of time, and that is exalting Christ and redeeming his church. That's what he's been doing from, from the beginning. Exalting Christ and redeeming his church. That's what it's always been about. Okay, so with just that much of a setup, just that much of a setup. Um, I don't want to say any questions so far, but <laughs> but uh, uh, I any questions so far? 
I'm going to say that with the caveat that I may say we're going to get to that in a moment. What was the word of that theology that you said? Dispensational. Dispensational theology. Mm-hmm. Okay, with that, here's what we're going to do with, uh, with what, uh, what time we have left. We're going, to go, we're going to look at three different interpretive views on the book of Revelation. Three different views, okay? And as far as these interpretive views go, I've come to my own conclusion as to which one I believe seems the most consistent with Scripture uh, and, uh, and uses the best means of interpreting Scripture. You may, you may come to a different conclusion, and that, that is okay. Ideally, you won't just take my word for it. But you'll leave here saying, you know what, I'm going to dig into it a little bit more. I'm going to do my own study and I'm going to come to a conclusion. But remember, whatever conclusion you, you come to, uh, make sure it's rooted in Scripture. Make sure it's rooted in the idea that, uh, that Scripture is the final authority. Not, well, I, I, I feel like it should be. You've got to discount those kind of things. And you've got to go back to Scripture over and over again and say, this is, this is my authority. This is my interpretive authority, okay? So the, the first of the three that we're going to look at. The first one is what is known as preterism. Okay, preterism. You don't have to memorize these words, uh, just the concepts, because sometimes we have a tendency to conflate these three different concepts, and then it really starts to get confusing at that point. So, But the backbone of preterism is based on the idea that the events described or detailed in the book of Revelation are not in the future. They're not in the future but they describe events that already occurred in the first century, okay? That Revelation is a book that describes past events. In fact, the, the word preterist is based on a Latin word that means to pass by. So this camp will argue that the events found in Revelation occurred around 70 AD with the, with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, that that was the culminating moment of the book of Revelation, was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Okay. So that's the first view. I'm just going to set up the, the top-level view here, and then we're going to dig into them each a little bit more. Um, and again, and you should know going in, as is the case with any worldview or school of thought, there's going to be diversity within each of these, uh, these three views. So you, you'll find someone who, dis, who, uh, who will subscribe to each of these views to a greater or lesser degree. So I'm going to give you the basics of what's widely accepted within uh, each of those schools of thought. Some believe in this camp that uh, everything has happened including the second coming of Christ in this camp. So again, that's more of a radical preterist view. Uh, and some might argue that everything but the second coming of Christ has already happened, but that's the, the basic gist, okay? Uh, this camp would even argue that the tribulation has already occurred, and many will argue that the millennium has already occurred. And now we're simply waiting for Christ's return, and that's the, the preterist view, Okay. Uh, when we speak of preterists in here, we're mostly going to be referring to a, what we'll call the moderate, moderate preterist camp, those that are still awaiting the return of Christ. So that's the first school of thought, preterist, okay? So far, so good. Again, I'm just doing high level right now, and we'll be getting a little bit, uh, depending on the time here. The next school of thought we want to consider is futurism. Futurism, and as you might guess, futurists believe that Revelation deals not with the past, but with the Future, you guys are so good, man. So if preterists believe that the events of Revelation have largely occurred in the first century, the futurists believe that they have yet to occur. That as we read the book of Revelation, we're reading about things that, that are in the distant future, or maybe the not too distant future, but mostly events that haven't occurred yet. That the events of Revelation will occur, I don't know, some 10 to 20 years before the return of Christ. Okay? Um, 
And uh, the futurist camp, uh, there's also varying degrees within that camp too, but by and large, this is the general understanding of the futurist, that most of the events in Revelation have not yet occurred, and that they'll only occur at the advent of his second coming. Okay, so that's the, the second camp, the futurists. And this is probably where the Left Behind series and the dispensational uh, theologians would, would, would fall into this camp, the futurists. That, that most of what we read in Revelation is, is something that is out in the, the near or distant future. Okay, so far so good? The third view is the idealist, the idealist or idealism. Uh, this is pretty different than, than what the preterists or futurists would believe. So if preterists believe that, the, that Revelation deals with the past, futurist believes what Revelation deals with is the distant future. The idealist says no. It, the idealist says it deals with the entire period. It covers the entire period of time from Christ's ascension to his second coming. That the book of Revelation deals with everything in that time span. Okay. Uh, the entire age of the church, from the events recorded in Acts all the way to his second coming. It's not a view that says it already happened. It's also not a view that says it will happen one day. It's more of a view that says it's been happening. It's been happening ever since Christ ascended. It's, it's been happening. The tribulation? Now. The millennium? Now. The second coming of Christ? Not yet. Not yet. That's the last thing we await. And when it happens, when Christ comes back, we're done. New heavens, new earth. So we, we await Christ's return. And when he does return, it's not a seven years of this or a thousand years of that. It's, it's it. New heavens, new earth. Christ has come back, okay? Um, that's the third main view. And it may spark within you more questions than answers, but do you get the basic idea? Yeah? All right. Okay. So those are the three main views. So you have the idealist uh, who covers the entire span. You have the preterist that covers the, the distant past, the futurist that covers the, the, the distant future. The idealist says, no, it's, it's the entire span. It's the entire span of the church. Okay, three main views. Which is the one that we say is right? Well, as far as our denomination is concerned, much like we talked about last week with, uh, with uh, creation, you can hold to any of these three positions and still fall within the realm of having a high view of Scripture with the exception of radical preterism, the one that says that Jesus has already come back and all that. So we would say the moderate. That one we'd probably have to exclude. But uh, uh, most would consider that uh, any, anyone who would say that, yeah, Jesus has already come back, <laughs> that's out of bounds, okay? So you can hold to any of these three views and still be within the safe uh, realm of the high view, high view of Scripture. Do you want to know which position I like? Yeah? Okay. Because I'm going to tell you either way. <laughs> all right? Um, I'll tell you again, any of these would have a high view of Scripture. Is there one that would make one have an advantage over another? Uh, when we dive into books like Revelation or Daniel, we have to remember, this is the first important point in all this discussion, what we have to remember is uh, that we're dealing with something that we call apocalyptic literature. It's, it's, apocalyptic literature is, is rare in the Bible. We see it a lot in, in Daniel. We see it in Revelation. Maybe a little sprinkles of it in, in Ezekiel. But it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty rare, but it's very unique. And so the first principle of good biblical interpretation or good hermeneutics is what that word is, is to consider the genre. 
we're going to be doing a study in this, a church-wide study, a small group study and in February. Considering the genre, you can't read a psalm. We talked a lot about this last week. You can't read a psalm in the same manner you'd read uh, an historical narrative. You have to take the literary considerations. Uh, psalms makes use of metaphor and other poetical devices where historical narrative usually doesn't. When you read that the, 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 the water's divided for the Israelites, that's a historical narrative. So we really believe that the water's divided because that's the, the context of historical narrative. It's not metaphor. The, the way that the, the historical narrative is set up, it's detailing fact. And so when the water's divided, the water's divided. But when we read the book of Psalms, for instance, when you read that my, my soul pants as the deer pants for the water, we don't walk away from that and think, is my soul panting right now? Is it like literally panting like a deer does? No, that's a metaphor. It's, it's metaphorical. It's symbolism. So too, you have to remember that Revelation is apocalyptic liter, uh, literature, and that means that it is highly, highly symbolic. It's highly symbolic. So you have to consider that when we interpret Revelation. But the other factor, the main factor when we consider the book of Revelation is, is the first rule of good biblical interpretation. Do you know what the first rule of good biblical interpretation is? Close. You use scripture to interpret scripture. Scripture always interprets scripture. You use, you take the parts, if there's something you encounter in scripture that isn't so clear, you go to other parts of scripture that are more clear to help you with the ones that aren't so clear. So is there one of these views here that relies on these principles of biblical interpretation more so than the others? Which one would that be? Okay. Rather than me just telling you right from the onset here, uh, I'm going to eliminate two, and then we'll <laughs> and then and then we'll see. In my humble opinion, if, if one stands out better or than uh, than the others, insofar as good biblical interpretation goes, let's let's look at the futurist position first. Okay, we have these three. Let's look at the futurist position first. The downfall to me, uh, and again, a lot of these ideas too. I don't want you to think that I. I uh, I came to these conclusions on my own. No, <laughs> there's been a lot, many, many, many pages written, many, many of whom by my brother. And I think my brother perhaps has been, he's a teacher at, uh, at RTS and uh, probably my biggest influence in so far as, as these uh, conclusions go. But the, the downfall of the futurist position seems to be the fact that they, now listen to me carefully here, that they interpret revelation with a high degree of literalism, Okay. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that a good thing? Don't we want to interpret the Bible with a high degree of literalism? Yes, we do. But remember what we were just saying. Do you interpret the Bible literally? Yes, we do, according to the genre in which it's written. So the futurist doesn't necessarily consider genre, or at least they don't do a good job of it. Because, for instance, if they see something in the book of Revelation, they they read about a star. That star isn't symbolic of something else. It's, It's a star. It has to be a star. Another one that I was reading about this, like, for instance, when you read about the 144,000. Got to be 144,000. It can't be 144,001. It can't be 139,999. It's got to be 144,000. When you talk about a high degree of literalism, that's what we're talking about. It is what it is. But like I say, remember, remember, it's apocalyptic literature. Highly, highly symbolic. A mountain isn't always a mountain. Sometimes it's symbolic of something else, 
Okay, here's a quick example. In the, and this again, this is one my brother pointed out. In the, in the book of Revelation, when we read about the city of Babylon for the futurists, it must be the city of Babylon. Therefore, it must be referring to a resurrected city of Babylon that will rise from the ashes and be rebuilt and exist in the Middle East as the resurrected city of Babylon. Okay, so if it says Babylon, it's got to be Babylon. Okay, so there's your high degree of literalism. But there's a problem with that. And Isaiah 13, uh, 19 to 22 tells us that when Babylon was to be destroyed, that no one would ever inhabit it again. Okay? It would be destroyed permanently. So if you read about Babylon in Revelation with a high literal view, it would have to contradict what Scripture already says about Babylon. Okay? If you believe the mention of Babylon is symbolic of something else, okay, now you're taking the word literally, but you're putting it in the context of apocalyptic literature, something highly symbolic, okay? Just like the book of Daniel. Uh, it's almost like Daniel had to come first and give us a, uh, a key insight because we understand a lot of how history unfolded after the book of Daniel was written. And so we see, aha, that's apocalyptic literature. So we have a key on how to understand Revelation. And that when you see symbolism in Daniel, when you see uh, giants or statues made of four different, different uh, uh, textures, we're not talking about a literal statue. We're not talking about silver and gold and bronze and clay. We're talking about, at that point, kingdoms. And that was revealed to us in Daniel. So we read Revelation through the same lens. Okay, here's, here's another reason that we might not think highly of the futurist view. It's that the book is, uh, is largely about events which transpired 20, 10 to 20 years before the, the second coming of Christ. What that means is, if that's the case, if the futurist says the book of Revelation is primarily about events that happen in the distant future 10 to 20 years before Christ comes, that means for the entire history of the church to that point, the book of Revelation is largely irrelevant. There's nothing for us to get out of it. If it's only about events that happen right before Christ comes, why, why do I have to read it? It'd be like if it would John, here's John's revelation, and he delivers it to the church, and, and uh, all the way back in, in the first century, hey, John, uh, thanks for this, this revelation here. Do I need to read it? Nah, don't worry about it. This, this isn't going to happen for another maybe 2,000 years, give or take, so you can sit on this one. You can just sleep it out, okay? No. Uh, and again, this is another, I think, another part of, uh, of the futurist thing that doesn't add up quite is that, is that if that's the case, if we're looking for this to fulfill uh, or happen 10 to 20 years before uh, Christ comes, what you're going to find yourself doing, and perhaps you've seen this already in this view, is that you're constantly looking outside of Scripture to give significance to the things that you read inside of Scripture. So you're constantly looking for that next sign. Oh, ooh, is it, is it, is it, is it uh, I heard my brother talk about this too. Is it Mikhail Gorbachev? Remember him, the Russian leader from the 80s? He, he has a mark, mark of the beast, or it could just be a birthmark, right? You're, you're always looking outside of scripture to see, oh, is it, is it, is it Ronald Wilson Reagan? Ronald, six letters. Wilson, six letters. Reagan, six letters. Six, six, six. Is that it? No. Right? You're always trying to do that. You're trying to look in the newspapers or on the internet. You know, what is going to give significance to what I'm reading about in Revelation? If, if it only happens 10 to 20 years before Christ comes, you, you're trying to validate it with, with an outside source. And so I think that's a weakness, okay? Um, again, and we've done that all throughout history. Oh, is it Napoleon? Is it Hitler, Stalin? You know, and it, and it never is. 
right? So again, the part that the position of the futurist requires you to look outside the Bible to make your conclusions, okay? So for example, if you read about a serpent in the book of Revelation, don't go to the internet to figure out what, what they mean by serpent. You go to the Bible. What does the Bible tell us a serpent is? Make sense? Okay. Genesis, you use scripture to interpret scripture. Okay. So for those reasons, really quickly, that's why I take out the futurist view. I think it has too many of those uh, weaknesses in, that, in those, uh, those, those categories. Okay, so what's left? Now uh, I'm going to talk about the, uh, the preterist view. And, and, uh, and, and I feel like this is, of all of them, probably the weakest. Because uh, scholars traditionally date the book of Revelation around the year 90 A.D. 90 A.D. And uh, without going into too much detail, that's pretty widely accepted in terms of uh, um, w- w- in the academic uh, realm. Uh, and to, so to, to hold on to this view, if you're going to say that, uh, yes, I'm a preterist, you have to contend that the book of Revelation was written about 45 or 50 A.D. Because remember, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Okay, so if it culminates, if the book of Revelation culminates with the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., if you have a book that was written in 90 A.D., well, that's not predictive of anything. It's, it's after the fact. So in order to make that work in the preterist view, you got to backdate it. you got to say, I think it was really written in 45 or 50. And, and then, again, it just does not hold water academically, especially when you, you hold revelation in light of the other letters that were being written and, uh, and uh, uh, even outside sources that contend that, that, well, no, John didn't die until, you know, late in, the, in that first century. So the whole house of cards falls down if you say that, yep, it, it is likely that Revelation was written later on, like in 90, 90 AD. Uh, the whole house of cards falls down. So the, the, the preterist view is largely based on the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and that's, uh, again, happened in 70, well documented. Um, and again, similar to, uh, um, well, let me do this point next. Uh, the, the preterist, in the opening chapter uh, of Revelation, it states, the time is soon. And so they say, aha. Because they say the time is soon, it means the events in the entire book must occur soon, like maybe in John's lifetime. But again, the problem with that is that the end of Revelation, chapter 22, it also reads, the time is soon. Okay, and that's speaking of language that's already you know, at the end of the book of Revelation, we've already gone through the second coming. We've already gone through the, the final judgment and, and all of that. So if the time is soon, and that hasn't happened yet, you see the problem there? It, that they're using two similar phrasings, the time is soon, the time is soon, and, and both referring to instances that are now centuries and centuries apart. And so I think the whole argument starts to fall apart, and sometimes uh, even the preterist will, will ignore the fact that you're using phrases like the, the time is soon not consistently, okay? And similar uh, to the preterist, how the preterist, or excuse me, the futurist looks to the internet and newspapers and whatnot to, to draw significance into what, uh, what the books, uh, book of Revelation is saying. The, the preterist has to look at history books, has to go back and say, and decide, okay, now I'm looking at the history books to assign meaning of, w- of what's going on uh, in the book of Revelation, um, they look in the history books to try and tie the prophecies of scriptures to something and then draw their conclusions rather than just looking at scripture itself. Okay, and so by the same rationale we use, to, we use for the futurists, the book of Revelation has little relevance then for um, uh, uh, the 
Christian after the first century. If it all is, is to dealing with, with things that happened in that first century, what relevance is it to you and I? If everything that's already happened in the book of Revelation culminated at 70 AD, there's really little significance for you and I to draw out of it. That much, you know, us or anyone from the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, there's no significance for it. So this isn't a book for Christians of all ages then. And so in that respect, I would probably say it's kind of a, uh, a weak, weak argument. But where does that leave us? It leaves us with the idealist view. And, uh, and why do I like the idealist view? Because of all the reasons we've just stated by negation of the other position, it correctly identifies Revelation as apocalyptic literature and therefore takes into account the highly, highly symbolic nature of it. Um, it also uh, draws conclusions not based on the history books or newspapers, but it uses scripture to interpret scripture. It uses the clear portions to interpret the unclear portions. Not only that, but this view has relevance for every age of the church. Every age. It's relevance for, for, the, for the early church and the modern church. It deals with issues beginning with the ascension of Christ all the way into a second coming. Okay? And probably the biggest reason of all, again, considering its genre is apocalyptic, it seems to identify the structure of the book correctly. And again, this is another one where we look at Daniel and see how it's written. We can apply it to Revelation and say, perhaps the same thing is going on here. The book of Revelation, and this is probably going to blow some of your minds. The book of Revelation tells us the same story seven times. The book of Revelation tells us the same story seven times. And each time it tells a story, we get a more detailed view of the story and it gets a little closer to the end. This is what's called a progressive parallelism. And this is what we see in Daniel too, okay? So if you make your way through Revelation, by the time you get to chapter, I think I have some of this written out here. Yeah, idealist progressive parallelism. Okay, these are how the chapters you might... I, I have, I have an, uh, uh, something I can email out if you're interested in that, that breaks down uh, how these chapters are broken up. But by the time you get to chapter 3, you almost get to the second coming. By the time you get to chapter 7, you get to the second coming and it passes it. Then it tells the story again. But by the time you get to chapter 11, you get a little bit closer to the final judgment. By the time you get to chapter 14, you hear the story again, but this time you reach the final judgment. By the time you get into chapter 16, you pass the final judgment and get closer to the new heavens and the new earth. And you hear the story again. But then when you get to chapter 19, you read about the new heavens and the new earth. Once again, you hear the story again. When you reach chapter 22, the last chapter, we see the new heavens and the new earth. It's the same story seven times, but each time you get a little further along. And have you ever seen something like that before in the Bible? Yes, in Daniel. In Daniel. We've seen it before. It's consistent with Scripture. We're not going into it blind. We're saying God gave us something else to look at through a, through a lens to look at Revelation. Whereas the futurist and the preterist... All right? They'll look at the book of Revelation as a chronological book, 
as a chronological book. And, and that's a tough sell for me because the language of the final judgment is repeated several times throughout the book. And so it makes you wonder or ask, well, how many final judgments are there? And that's what we see reflected in some of their beliefs. And that's why we see like a, a, a you know, well, the Lord comes back and raptures some people, but then he comes back again later and raptures some people some more. <laughs> you know, how many raptures? There's one. The Lord is coming back one more time. That's it. That's it. And so you have to explain it away that way by, by inserting things in there like, well, he's going to come halfway through the, the, the tribulation. You know, that's why I say, in a, in a manner of speaking, the idealist view and the covenantal view is, is quite a bit more, more straightforward. History ends when Jesus comes back. The end. That's the next thing we're looking for. Be ready. He could come back at any time. And when he does, history's done. History's done. New heaven, new earth. Okay? Now, uh, gosh... Any questions? <laughs> uh, yeah, any questions? Yeah. Yeah, because again, you, uh, she, uh, tell me your name again. It's Rachel. Rachel. Rachel asked, why do we have to interpret apocalyptic language symbolically? Uh, and again, I, I would refer you back to Daniel. In Daniel, we, we know we know the meaning behind the book. We, we receive an interpretation uh, from the angel himself to, to, to Daniel. And so that's why when we see, okay, uh, it, if they weren't literal in, in the narrative sense in the book of Daniel, and it was dealing with the same subject matter, end times, and the end of creation, and, or end of, uh, um, yeah, end of creation. Well, new, new creation. Uh, so in other words, what we saw was, okay, in the book of Daniel, we see things that were happening in the moment, things that were going to happen in the uh, near future, and things that were happening in the distant future. And everything that they talked about there, and especially in Daniel's dreams that he was interpreting for the king, or then later on into the second half of the whole book of Daniel, everything in it was very symbolic. Uh, and, and so that's why we say, okay, if that's what he gave us for Daniel, then let's apply the same rationale to Revelation. Uh, and frankly... When you read Revelation 2, we've already seen a part of this history unfold. And we see how the symbolic nature is applied to things that have already happened. So that we know it's not that high degree of literalism. So that's why you say when the book of Revelation, it's not just a book about the distant future that we have to try and figure it out. There's already things that have happened that we can apply to uh, uh, events that, again, have already occurred from a symbolic standpoint. Make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Highly controversial. Because, again, the, it's, it all depends on how you would approach the Bible in, in terms of genre. Because if you don't hold to the fact that uh, there is symbolism in the Bible, and there is, especially in, uh, you know, in the Psalms, in wisdom literature, uh, it's not only symbolism, it's metaphor and everything. And so you, you read it. We've, we've often said that reading the Bible, you approach reading the Bible as you would any piece of literature. Uh, you look at the author's intent. Uh, you look at what they were trying to communicate. And, uh, and it's really important to understand that because this is the way that God gave it to us. He, he could have written his word in the sky. He could have just, you know, put it in our heads. But instead he used human beings uh, with the ability to communicate, uh, the ability to communicate in the context that they were in to deliver his word. And often it's done in such a way that it's symbolic. In the same way you might tell a story or you might tell a story written by the hands of man inspired by the Lord. You know, it's sometimes symbolically, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, it, Jesus also spoke to his disciples about his second coming, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does, is it in line, in line with, uh, with 
Yes. Okay. So Todd is asking, did Jesus speak to his disciples about the second coming? Uh, and it certainly is, especially in the book of Matthew. When we talk about all, there's so many uh, parables, you know, the parables of the, the ten virgins, uh, the, the parable of the, uh, uh, the, the talents and the return of the, of the king. This is all pointing forward to the second coming of Christ. Now, what's interesting, in, uh, in the uh, um, futurist view, the view that believes that the, uh, ra uh, the rapture will happen and you'll disappear, but you won't. You know, or you'll disappear, you won't. Uh, they incorrectly apply what Jesus revealed in Matthew chapter 20, I can't remember. It says, as in the times of Noah, right? One man will be working at the plow, one will be in the field, one will disappear. Well, okay, as in the time of Noah, who was left behind in the time of Noah? Noah was left behind. The righteous one was left behind. In the futurist view, it's the righteous people that are taken up. And it's the quote-unquote bad people that are left behind. They get it in reverse. So if we're to apply that rationale in the time of Noah, uh, it's, the, it's the righteous ones that are left behind. And the righteous ones will inherit the new earth. And the, so that's why I think, again, that that futurist view is, is, is off. But yeah. But did there, uh, he also spoke about you, these things will come to pass before they die mm -hmm. in their times. Did they not? Or am I mistaken? Yeah, so I, that's why I said, okay, so the new kingdom, yeah. okay, Christ, the advent of Christ's kingdom begins uh, uh, when he said, I mean, effectively when he, when he uh, was resurrected. That's it. His, his, the, the inauguration of his kingdom began at that point. And now it extends out through his second coming. His kingdom is here right now. And that's why you, you hear uh, Martin Luther or whomever you've heard of the already not yet. His kingdom is now. Yes, we still struggle with, with sin and, and the byproducts of the fall, but his kingdom is now. It's now. Uh, the millennium is now. And he mentions the destruction of the temple, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is already Yeah, it's already happened. And, but, and the, but the thing is, is that uh, Paul then goes on to affirm the fact that, uh, I think it's in Second uh, Corinthians, that we are the temple. We are the temple. Yeah. So someone else? Question? All kinds of fascinating things uh, in, in, insofar as this is concerned. I, d I did more reading on this than, uh, than uh, I was prepared to share today. So if you have any other questions or thoughts, especially as uh, I, got, I went down a wormhole of, uh, of, uh, of the Antichrist. And uh, really quickly, really quickly, um, because I, th I think a lot of us have this, this view that, uh, um, that the Antichrist, uh, again, might be someone like a, a political leader, a political figure. Uh, if you read 1 John, and if you read uh, 2 John, you'll see that the apostle there speaks of the spirit of Antichrist and also speaks of the Antichrist, okay? Uh, if you read Paul uh, in, his, uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians, he talks about a man of lawlessness, okay? In Revelation... Uh, chapter 12, 13, you read about the dragon. And then you also read about the first beast and the second beast. Okay? So you're putting all these things together, using scripture to, 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 to complete it all. And, and when, you, when you tie it all together, you have the dragon, symbolically represented and identified in other places, Satan himself, the dragon. That dragon will be cast into the uh, into the, the sea of, uh, of destruction, okay? So you have the dragon. Uh, 
the first beast, you can tie back to those ideas of, of the spirit of Antichrist that has been pervasive all throughout history. Antichrist is a, a notion that says uh, its, its marker is persecution of Christians. Its marker is anything that leads you away from the teachings of Christ. And that's been happening all throughout the ages. And so, yes, there's these spirits of Antichrist that have existed throughout all of history. So you have dragon, beast, number one, spirit of Antichrist, and then the Antichrist. So that leads you to believe that, yes, there will be someone in time, space, history that perhaps sort of personifies the spirit of Antichrist. Now, you see what you have there. It gives me chills. One, two, three. Personified Antichrist, spirit of Antichrist. It's like a fake trinity. It's like a false trinity. Uh, and and what's, what's eerie about that is that the way that the, that, uh, the dragon operates, he doesn't come and say, ah, I'm going to get you. He comes not as light, but as, a, as an imitator of light. Someone who imitates the real thing. That's from the, from the very get-go in the garden. That was his M.O. Not, do you want to establish a rebellion against God? That wasn't his M.O. What was his M.O.? Wish I could be like God. Well, that couldn't be bad, right? I could be bad. Of course, I want to be like God. And that's what he used. That's what he liked. He just twisted it just that much. And so when you see these, it's set up like that. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Wow. And so, and so with that, I would just leave you with the idea that, uh, yes, uh, so there, there could be this. There certainly seems to, uh, the scripture seems to suggest that there's a figure uh, that would embody the Antichrist. Uh, you don't need to go looking for him. You don't need to go, or her, I don't know. You don't need to say, this is the one, this is the one, because history's proven that's a difficult task. You just need to be ready. Uh, and we tend to look at uh, that through American Christian eyes. When you think about what's happening in Ukraine or the church in China or, or uh, in South America, all, it, it doesn't look the same as it looks here. And so one day, yes, I think someone will come that embodies what Antichrist is. But our job, our job is to be ready for his return at any time. Uh, and, and when that day comes, okay. If there's someone that comes that personifies, it's okay. You are protected by the blood of the Lamb. And you need not worry about whatever that person is, is standing for or standing against. You just need to be protected by the blood of the Lamb and stand in the Lord. What's that? I think that would be in the, in the category of the spirit of Antichrist. Yeah. So again, remember you have that fake trinity. So the spirit of Antichrist is... And, and again, the Apostle John spoke of both. So, uh, yes. We have the dragon, who is Satan himself, spirit of Antichrist, who could be government uh, authority figures, anyone who sought to, to destroy Christians, persecute Christians, teach against teachers of Christ. That's your, your beast number two, or beast number one, I'm sorry. And then beast number two would be the embodiment of the Antichrist. So that's your fake trinity. David. I thought you were going to tell us you were a pan-millennialist. A pan-millennialist? No, I'm an amillennialist. Yeah. Which is kind of a misnomer meaning. That's not saying I don't believe in a millennial. I believe we're in it now. But it's just a joke that it's going to all pan out. It's all going to pan out. <laughs> I got you. I fell for that. I'm not All right, let me pray. And then, again, if you have any other thoughts, comments, or questions, please don't hesitate to, to ask me about them. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, what a joy your word is uh, that we get to look at things like, uh, like the book of Revelation. 
and, uh, and just scrape down a little bit beneath the surface and be blessed by it, uh, knowing that, again, even if we don't come to a conclusion that allows us to say, oh, I get it all now, uh, instead we're sometimes left to wonder. Uh, but the thing is, is that our wonder is not misplaced. Our wonder is in you, uh, that you have it all worked out, and you will protect your people. You will protect your children. Uh, you guarantee it. You've promised us that. Uh, so give us, give us strength for the battle, give us strength for the day, and help us to long for the day that you return, but at the same time help us uh, keep our hand to the plow and, and, uh, and telling uh, the world about uh, the only hope that there is in Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for him, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.